0: Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's platinum sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation and Finance. The Stevens Center is the premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. In today's episode, we sit down with Hanif Joshaghani, founder and CEO of Cement. Cement is a behavioral analytics platform solving the huge problem of debt collections for telecom companies, financial institutions, and more. Combining behavioral science and advanced analytics, their engagement platform helps providers come up with tailored treatment plans for every customer to increase retention rates and recovery rates. Hanif shares how his own experiences as a child inspired him to create Cement. How the product works, how he spotted COVID back in January, and how he raised fifty-two million dollars virtually. Let's get started. So Hanif, great to have you on the show today, and, and thank you for taking the time out.
1: No problem. Happy to be here.
0: All right, and uh, where are you quarantining at the
1: moment? At my friend's sushi restaurant. <laughs> no, no, I, uh, <laughs> I uh, I'm in Calgary, but we're not really in quarantine anymore, right? Like we haven't opened up the office per se, but most businesses have opened up and the, the, the province is gradually opening up everything all the way to like, for example, the holiday resorts in Banff, like, you know, Fairmont and stuff are all opening up in the coming weeks. So life is slowly in a different way, but slowly starting to get back to normal.
0: Okay, so to get started, can you just give us a background of yourself and take us up to when you decided to start CEMENT?
1: Oh, how far back do you want me to go? I guess. Uh, So I started my career back in 2000, and I guess, what was that? I finished university around 01. You know, my background, if you want to go all the way back, you know, my family were political refugees from Iran. We escaped through the mountains, and we ended up in refugee camps in Iraq up until I was 13 years old. From there, we got asylum to Canada eventually, and we landed in Toronto. We were poor. We didn't have much, but uh, I caught a couple of breaks. You know, those breaks, you know, academic and otherwise, it landed me a, a scholarship a full rise, University of Chicago. My background was math and economics. Um, you know, I, I did a bunch of years of working in places like Chicago and New York, and eventually went back to do my MBA, Did some merchants and acquisitions type work for the, you know, investment banks after that. And about 10 years ago, I started my first company. Um, and I've had a couple of successes. I've done a lot of investing, angel investing and and entrepreneurial investing along the way. Some of it has worked. some of it has hasn't, but overall, it's been an incredible ride. And you know after a while, you know, like my goal was always to make money because when you come up for, that's like the number one thing. Eventually, though, that evolved. And once I had set up my family and my mom and my dad, and everybody was taken looked after, it was more like, you know, there was a moment where it's just like, well, that's an empty calorie. And it was actually deflating. It was like, it's like, just sacrificed my whole life. And, you know, the thing that I was chasing is actually not that great. And so, or not that fulfilling. And so I just, I kind of went into this kind of moment of clarity where I was like, I need a why. I need to chase something more than I need there. You know, whatever I do has to mean something. It has to make an impact on something. It has to, in some way, you know, socially, societally make a difference in in the world in a positive way. I need to be have the passion. If I'm gonna break my back doing something, there needs to be more than money driving me as the engine. And so I I try to, you know, apply my heart for a change instead of my mind first. And then turn on my mind after the fact and see if I could, you know, make a go of it commercially. So that's kind of what led me to cement honestly is you know, I was at a tech conference, I was doing a lot of those, trying to figure out if I could connect to something, you know, listening to other people speak and sitting on round tables and fireside chats and whatever like that. And one of the conferences was in Vancouver and I'm sitting there with my buddy who is doing really well and he's been very successful and he comes from like, you know, that Moldova, Romania area, which is very, very poor poorest area of Europe. And we're just reminiscing about how far we've come. and you know, you know, and when me, when me and my friends get together, it's always like after a couple of drinks, it turns into like who has had the harder life. It's like, well, I've done it. Well, I've done it. Remember when And I started to reminisce about the old days of, you know, being 14, 15, barely speaking in English, having had zero, very little education because we came from camps. And, and you know, like you remembering. Getting harassed by collectors, you know, remembering hiding the bills, remembering having uh, almost like an allergic reaction to 1-800-CALLS, you know. You know, I remember hiding the bills and then the bills being late and then the penalties and then them finding out that I hit the last one just because I didn't want stress in that particular day and then getting my butt kicked by my family. So just reminiscing those and, and my buddy looks at me and says, hey, listen, that's still a problem. You're just telling me you're looking for a new project, go solve that. And at first I was like, there's no way that 20 years later, that's really a problem still. And, but I couldn't shake it, you know? And I just, starting like literally the next day, I started to do research and the more I did, the more I became obsessed with it. And the more I started to like yell at the computer and I was like, why aren't you solving this the right way? And I started shell companies, looking at other people's software. Field interviews, hundreds of them over months, building a, a, you know, validating my assumptions and trying to unpack, like, what does this ecosystem look like? Why hasn't anybody solved it? What is it? Is there a thesis around all of this? Like, so, you know, that kind of led me slowly towards checking off enough boxes that I was like, look, this is something I could do. Hundreds of field interviews validating assumptions, building a construct of what, what does this universe look like? And what is my thesis for, why this hasn't been solved and what is the right way to solve it? What is the exact problem? Mm -hmm. And I spent months doing that. And once I had enough data points where I felt like I could really go after it, I went to TIFF, you know, I've known her for a long time. I've tried to get her into every business that I come across. You know, I've done a lot of angel investing along the way. And, uh, so I went to her and she always tells me no, because there's no why. And so a year later, and a dozen ideas later, I was like, Tiff, I got a why. You got to join me this time. And so she, she got on board and we went out it hard. And Three years later, here we are. Who is Tiff and, and how did you meet her? So Tiffany is is, is Cement co-founder. So she runs, so there's two elements to the way we deliver our value proposition. There's the platform that allows you to execute this incredibly sophisticated and complex layer of customer engagement strategies that are driven by a whole bunch of stuff like the ability to ingest volume, construct very, very complicated strategies, and then using leading indicators, surface insights on what's working and what's not to iterate at a high velocity. The second part, that's the tech, right? And so the second part of it is the strategic plans for engaging customers, getting them to engage back and getting them to the right outcomes, getting them to cure and saving consumers to drive value, both for the consumer and the vendor. That strategic plan is all informed by things like behavioral science, nudging best practices, neuroscience, like adjudication uh, strategies. And so that's the strategic component, right? It's like what you lay down on top of the deck. And typically, like, runs the science department that is helping develop strategic IP, which we then embed into the tech to run those strategies. And we have everything from neuroscientists to biometric labs to, like, get you know, to measure the, like, the unsubconscious behavioral responses of the various components of a message that we then assemble together. So it's a very sophisticated, science-driven approach to every pixel of what is comprised of an engagement strategy with a customer and she runs that side of the business
0: got it that was very helpful overview so kind of digging deeper into how the product works could you maybe walk me through a customer journey and just give me an example of of how cement would help uh, your
1: customers so sure so let's say in the existing world like the pre cement world you got a very static, like customers become past due, right? But then from there, once they become past due, or once they're exhibiting some sort of at-risk behavior, right? It's kind of like dial for dollars, one size fits all. There's these hard-coded, static treatment paths on how these customers are engaged. And there's a pretty heavy reliance on call centers, And then on top of that, there's like siloed digital engagement strategies. Like we're going to drop an SMS here and an email there, right? You take that static, you know, it's almost like the technological equivalent of somebody talking at you. Do you follow what I'm saying? We transform that to a very dynamic behavior science informed, empowering, empathetic two way conversation. That is driven by a huge amount of like the best, like effectively like weaponizing through technology, behavioral science, with the end game of having the right type of conversation with the consumer and measuring their intent, their sentiment, and then depending on what they say and whether they click, you can literally dial and create small degrees of differences in what the next step is for that customer, what channel, what tone of voice, what cure tool. So if you think, and then think about all your segments of customers, you can then learn find patterns and sub-segment and get smaller and smaller clusters and across every cluster run their own unique strategy. But the strategies are no longer like a horizontal line. It's like there's all these exits off the highway depending on how they interact with the main highway. And then at every node along the way, there's a million decisions. What do you say? Where's the button? What is the tone of voice? What kind of solution do you give them a payment plan? Do you ask them for the whole thing? Do you first ask them if everything is okay? And depending on how they interact, what happens next may change. And then at all of those nodes, you're learning because you're capturing, you have hooks sitting behind all that engagement, all that workflow to measure what is the intent, what is the sentiment, what is working and what is not. And then the system was fundamentally from the studs architected so that you could iterate on all of that at a high velocity. So all of a sudden, instead of the static, backwards-looking, one-size-fits-all paradigm, you have a much more dynamic, two-way communication with customers to get them to the right place. So less people fall through the cracks and more people get to retain their service. You're you're more efficient because you're not gonna rely on call centers as much, right? Your operational footprint shrinks, but on the other side, you get more engagement, higher NPS, better customer experience, and more people, less people churning involuntarily because they fell through the cracks, which means higher lifetime value, higher margins and lower back debt.
0: So, do your clients, financial institutions, telecoms, and others have some control
1: and inputs on your product? It not nothing is a black box, right? It's all like, it's all like capability driven. What I mean by that is. We have the scientists, we have the technology, but at the end of the day, the system was built. Like we're talking about massive organizations with a huge amount of regulations, Marcom departments, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you can't just freestyle any of this. So there's a collaboration cadence. Like we're laying down a strategy as a suggestion. We're working collaboratively with the customer to say, here's what we would do. What do you guys want to do? We're aligning on what the version one with the baseline is going to be, which is important, by what they want to do. Synthesize with what we've learned as domain experts, right? And then we lay down on top of the tech. But then from there, they start to see the insights and the analysis on what's working, what's not. And we can help them drive it, like suggestions for how to iterate and optimize on a continuous motion. But those are all pushed to the surface to the customer as, here's what we're seeing, here's why, here's what we suggest next, what do you want to do? So the customer at the end of the day has control over all of it and has the ability to drill down into all of it so that there is no black box experience at all, which wouldn't work in a regulated environment like in FISA or Talcos or any of those places anyway. That's the power, right? It's not like, give me your data and I'm going to do a bunch of cool things. It's like, we'll work with you as a partner to solve a problem within the confines of your business. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. So then why haven't any financial institutions built this on their own? It, It seems that it has a lot of
1: benefit for them to add. I mean, look, like we're like three years and a ton of money across a ton of companies into this. And we still have a pretty aggressive roadmap. Could somebody build this? For sure they could. But, I mean, the fact that they're getting such a massive ROI is by virtue of their working with a company that is singularly focused on solving this one specific thing across an entire ecosystem and coming at it. First of all, all, most treatment and collections departments are reporting into finance and risk. So the history of those departments, you know, it's starting to change now, but the history of those departments is heavily weighted and tilted towards adjudication, risk, segmentation, things like that. Not engagement and treatment. That is not, that's always an afterthought in a, most of the products that the vendors sell them, like an Equifax or a FICO, whoever sells them, right? So it's not a core competency of these vendors and it historically. Now, that's all starting to change, but we've come at it with a very unique one-two punch of all that behavioral science, all that knowledge, all that strategy combined with the with the technology, like the Ferrari and the Lamone driver, right? And so we've come up with this unique value proposition. We're learning and iterating and the product is evolving in light years because we only focus on one That's one thing. So can a massive company do this on their own? For sure they could. But if you think about collection, like think about in the world of a bank, think about all the priorities they have with lending, with credit cards, with everything else. The amount of technological horsepower this will take and then the amount of scientific horsepower that this will take for them to do themselves. And then it will take them years to tinker with it. And they're only getting the experience of their own customers, not an entire ecosystem. Could they get there if they're big enough? Sure. But are they really going to be able to prioritize that in their IT department against all of the other things that they have to do on their banking, on their credit cards, on everything else? Like at the end of the day, large organizations and small are in the business of getting to value as quickly as possible. And working with us achieves that far better than trying to do it on their own. And every time somebody's tried to do something this complex on their own, they're not a technology company. It ends up getting, supporting that and keeping it so that it's always on the bleeding edge of technology is very, very difficult. If you're in that business and that's all you do, and that is you're in your DNA like it is in ours, then great, you're going to be able to do it. But if, but as a bank, that shouldn't be your number one priority. Your number one priority should be to go get the very best products from people that are singularly focused on those things, and then focus on your mission-critical things, like the pillars of your business. And the companies that we're selling to, can we generate a ton of value? Yes. But is this one of the foundations of how they built their business? Of course not. So it doesn't make sense for them to build it themselves.
0: And then who were your first customers and what did the sales process look like when you were starting Cement?
1: You know, when I started, it was just me, right? We, now we have a fairly sizable sales organization that we plan to double this year again. So, But when we first started, our first set of customers, they really bought my vision more than a product. And then they were very patient and understanding as I got us to a point where we had an MVP. So it was more like I sat down, with the key stakeholders, and those are people that I'd already built a relationship with from my research when I was actually doing the market analysis, deciding to get into cement, right? So I went back to all those conversations. I was like, who, is it? who did I talk to who's a visionary, who I believe is an early adopter, who I can sit down with, look him in the eye, and he's going to say, I know you're not there yet, but I believe in you, and let's get there together so i went to those customers so this that was early days right like they're buying a vision and values and they're they're really you know they're making a bet that i can get us there that's changed dramatically to today now it's a very well-defined sales process like our cro was an svp of sales at ericsson vp of sales at amdocs like you know he built he was vp of sales at two startups that he exited so the guy's tried and true and he's All he's ever done is large enterprise sales. And so he's built a much more disciplined process around sales. And it's all about going in there, telling them, here is the ROI. Here is the hard, measurable dollars that you're going to generate every year using cement. And here's the amount of resources that we're going to deploy. And this isn't the end of the road. Like as much value as we're delivering today, here's a roadmap. You know, like 80% of every dollar that we raise goes into R&D to continue to evolve the product, to add more AI capabilities, right? To add NLP and conversational, to, you know, roll out, synthesized. There's a million things from synthesized voice to payments to everything that there's a huge roadmap sitting in front of us so they're investing into not only what they will get right out of the gate which is immediately accretive but also the fact that this thing continues to evolve now they have a partner that when they go to and they say hey what about this what about that we're like yeah this makes sense it's gonna make sense for all our customers let's build it let's roll it out and we've seen we've seen that happen time and time again where we've been able to in a very agile way deliver value to the customer but get smarter by listening to the customers and evolve as a business
0: so your end users the customers that are actually falling behind on the payments what's the most common type of debt that they find themselves in and what is usually their situation
1: it varies by industry whether you're talking about and the kind of product right like telcos are as biggest vertical you know we're and we're getting into fis now so um like we're the you know we're the you know by far leader we're working with most north american telcos now on the telco side and we're just getting into banking now What drives them towards delinquency is to, there's a huge distribution, right? It could be everything from lazy payers to trans, you know, uh, that just are forgetful or whatever like that, to people that are dealing with some sort of financial difficulty short term, changing jobs, uh, recently unemployed, COVID is happening now. California fires, like something is going on in their life that is creating an economic hardship spike. And so a job there is to understand what's going on, give them the right level of support, hold their hand through these difficult times as the brand, as the vendor, because you want to stand by your customers and see them through the other side. You know, and then, you Know there's all kinds of other things, right? Like, there's people that get upset with the close vendor that if you just empower and engage with them the right way, all of a sudden they'll pay faster. But if you're just hammering them with 1 800 calls, if you're overwhelmed or they get pissed, then they won't. So, it you it, know, and then obviously, a very, very small portion of it is people that just never intended to pay, but we call those bad actors, like, they were just like they're. They were their intentions were never good out of the gate. They they were there to gain the system, but that's a very very small percentage of what's going on. Like not even like a rallying error, honestly. Like most people want to do the right thing. The key is to engage them the right way to make them feel empowered. So you feel they feel like you're there to help them as individuals, and you're not you're not just a number. And try uh, to get them to think about this as an engagement and treatment problem rather than a collection problem. That's the key. The key is that cement doesn't, it's never viewed itself as a collections platform. It's always been about customer engagement, understanding customers, saving customers, treating customers. That's the way we view our business.
0: I'm I'm glad you brought up that point because I think so many people and myself included, even when I think about falling behind on payments, so many people automatically assume that there's some malicious intent behind that instead of trying to empathize with the situation, understand that these circumstances come
1: up for these people. Exactly. And it used to be a, a smaller percent of the population. Now it's bigger because of what's going on with the recession and COVID. So all of a sudden, the number of people that you need to understand, what is their behavior? What is their intent? How are they feeling? How can I engage them in a way to deescalate their mind and show them that I'm going to be there with them as the brand and I'm going to get them to, uh, to the other side of this? Right? How can I do that? right? I'm, I'm giving them a deferral, but if I don't communicate with them the right way and I give everybody a deferral and I'm not targeted surgical, I don't understand who to give it to. A lot of people are going to take it that don't really need it. And you're going to run out of like deferral dollars really to be able to afford to do this before everybody who really needs it gets it. So not only will cement allow you to engage better and target better, but then whoever, so that your, the money goes to the people who need it the most, before it runs out, but on the other side of it, it's like you engage, you nurture, you understand how the situation is evolving so that you don't create a bunch of unforced errors down the line as well. So in the current environment, doing this with cement is more important than ever, especially because call centers are overwhelmed and depleted. So how else are you gonna be able to do this? So, like, if, if the mission of some was to save as many at-risk customers as possible and help them avoid the things that my family went through, like, this is our moment to stand up for our mission. And so everybody in this company is, like, working till their fingers are sore, basically, trying to, you know, we we doubled our team since March already. And, you know, we're going to, you know, tr- double it again by the end of the year. And the whole point is... This is it. Like we were built to do this type of social good. The world for without sounding too egotistical, needs that help more than ever. So let's stand tall and let's do it.
0: Yeah, I really couldn't think of many more important products right now than what Cement is doing given COVID and, and all other issues going on in the country right now. So how, how was managing the business during COVID? Kind of when did Cement start to realize that? This pandemic was going to be what it became and starting to make the transition to remote work and, and being a leader during that time.
1: So we started practicing going remote in January because I started to see the data points in the marketplace. And well, even my board was honestly rolling their eyes a little bit, like any of you being paranoid. But, you know, I started to... Because we thought that it might come, but we didn't know when. And we didn't want to be caught flat footage. So everything around working remote, making sure everybody has high-end Wi-Fi, everybody has equipment, everybody understands what COVID is, and educational sessions during stand-ups. So I had to do all of that in just starting January. And then early March, when we saw the first time that I was coming to Alberta, you know, the first case happened on a Tuesday night at 11. I had an executive meeting at 11.30. That next morning, we had a team-wide stand-up. At nine, by noon, everybody was remote. So we moved pretty quickly on it.
0: That's great. I'm sure you're, you're very glad you made that decision at,
1: at this point. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, it's difficult because we've still been scaling and growing, and now the pace of growth has accelerated. And growing this much and going remote and the demand for our services, it hasn't been easy. But again, like, it's incredible when I think about our team, and I think about what drives them, the mission, right? Instead of their wage or something like that, we have missionaries in this company, like a cult-like commitment to the greater good and to the mission of this company. And so you see people that are just, on the one hand, you can tell everybody's exhausted. On the other hand, when you do employment surveys, you know, the, the average score is like nine and a half. And so it's like, you have this thing where everybody understands the historic moment that we're in, the positive impact we can have and how important their jobs are, right? I won't compare ourselves to health frontline workers and stuff like that, obviously, but everybody here is super determined to do their part and uh, that drives them and that motivates them. So as difficult as remote has been, it hasn't stopped us and it won't.
0: And then how have you gone about managing the hiring process and then most more importantly, the onboarding process when, when you're growing this quickly digitally?
1: We're, we're overhauling the onboarding right now to take, make it a lot more immersive because a lot of that organic learning isn't happening as effectively by just being in the office and overhearing things and things like that. The recruiting part has been good, right? Because we are hiring at a pace that's uh, there's very few companies that can, that can say the same in this environment. And so with the balance sheet that we have and the hiring speed and the, the social good of the company, it's really resonating in the marketplace. And hiring has been very, very good. The, the challenge has been the on- onboarding and the training. And that's where we've lost a little bit because what was working in the office when everybody was just around each other, doesn't work as effectively remote. And so we're overhauling that as we speak and making it a lot more from like a a couple, like we're making it more immersive, a lot deeper. It's almost like a cement academy with mock simulators and test accounts. And we're doing, we're just investing. That's one of the biggest areas we're investing right now is building a very, very heavyweight onboarding and training program so that people and it's going to take longer to do that, obviously, but then once they are done with it, they they come in a lot more up to speed and feeling that they contribute, can, can contribute a lot faster.
0: And I saw, you know, mentioning the growth that you talked about earlier, I saw you, you recently raised about $52 million in your Series B. Can you talk about, you know, the motivation for the funding, the the use of funds and what this fundraising round
1: was like? You know, we started it before, the, before COVID got serious and we closed it during COVID. So it was like, it was a wild ride, honestly. Like, but one of the interesting things, our lead investor was Inovia. Um, they're based out of Toronto and Montreal. They have offices from London to to Menlo, like all over. And they, you know, I I love the partners there. I love the guys that have joined. the you know, Dennis, who's joined our board. And as different, it was a, it was a very it ain't an easy thing to say. Hey, we decided to invest in this company. This is the valuation we're going to give them, and we're going to stand tall on all of it. You know, but they they they, they, put, they staked their claim and they put their flag in the, in the ground and, and we did as well. And uh, we got it done. It was like from term sheet to close. I think it was like 30, 40 days, which if you think about what's going on out there, is like not an easy thing. And that's also a testament to my corporate corporate team, right? My corporate finance team, who just worked almost 24 hours a day to get this thing done. So it was one of the most... I, I, you know, I've been in capital markets. I've seen a lot of fun. It was one of the most. It was the most roller coaster experience in my life. But it got done. And the reasons for the funds is exactly, you know, we're dealing with some of the biggest brands and biggest companies in the world now, and it's just scale, 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 right? Scaling the infrastructure, the environments, the, 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 the cloud operations, the technology. Our AI team went from like a couple of people to like. 20, 30 people and we're gonna double it again. So uh, delivery and account management for all these major accounts. So every aspect in every department and every job function we're growing right now. So, and it's really driven by the demand for what we're doing.
0: And then how did you go about choosing your investors along the way? Criteria
1: one is always, is this the guy that aligns with our values? The person, the organization right like i spend a lot of time with these people i don't treat them transactionally you know i start talking to my series b investors when i close my series a it's a journey right they get to see how i execute and how i run my business and the kind of person i am and i get to see that right so that's always been my motto i don't feel i could use forever and i don't feel like inside of a 90-day process you can really get the measure of a man and that matters to me but then from there it's all the usual things right like do they have the enterprise experience do they understand what it is to operate a company like ours growing at this speed? All of those types of things. So, valuation actually ends up being like the bottom of the considerations.
0: That makes sense. And with, with all of these companies now raising successfully, you, you hope that maybe in the future people get more comfortable doing a lot of these interactions and calls digitally and over
1: Zoom, hopefully saving us quite a few. I hope so. But, you know, that didn't really apply to us again. Like, I don't know like i, I knew uh, I built a relationship with our a invest a investors for a long time, with our seed investors for a year before the seed, and with Inovia and the rest of the guys that got in for a year before the B. So they knew me. they there was a there's two parts to when you bet on a company. You're betting on the executives and you're betting on the business. As you get bigger and bigger, the executives, when you're right starting from the beginning, there's no business. So obviously, of a it's all the management team and the idea. And can that management team deliver that idea? So it becomes heavily influenced on his track record, his character, things like that. The bigger you get, if you go from a million-dollar company to a billion-dollar company, the influence of what the business is doing becomes bigger and bigger, obviously. So I, but early on, like A and B, C, A, and B, who the executives are and can they execute and deliver the promise that matters a lot, and we they, I and you know I, I give them a longer window into who I am and how I operate, specifically because of that, and because I really want to understand how they operate too. I don't know what's going to happen now. It's an interesting thing. Like I don't know if people are going to be comfortable writing these big checks into. Once you get into a massive company, like multi-billion, then doing that remote and not really getting a feel for the executive when the company's already hundreds of millions in revenue, I can see that happening. If you're writing a small check that you can write off and not worry about it, like angel investing, I can see that also happening. But in the middle where it's like a fairly significant check, but the influence of looking a person in the eye and really getting comfortable with him is still very, very important. I don't know how they're going to get bridge that gap, honestly. I, I, I don't have the answer. It's going to be difficult, I think. Yeah.
0: And then kind of going off of that, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs right now that are maybe leaving the corporate world much like you did at one point and, and trying to start ventures right now?
1: Have passion for it. One, like don't just don't chase money, chase. Chase something that even if you weren't getting paid for it, you'd have fun every day, and it wouldn't feel like work. Like chase something that you love. One, and the other one is drill deep before you build anything and raise it. Like really understand the problem, understand the ecosystem, understand the competitors. Do your homework before getting in there, because far too many investors that I, idea guys that I see, like they jump the gun too soon. They haven't done that upfront work. And so they end up with a product and they don't quite have product market fit. And now they have to pivot the product. And, you know, it's expensive to change. It's expensive. It's very easy to change idea, pivot with an idea. It's very, very difficult to do it with the product, especially once you've spent other people's money. So I would say unpack and de-risk your thesis and your expertise of how you're going to do it. What's your go-to-market? What differentiates you? What is the way they're solving it today? Are they happy with it? Would they buy a product? Like, Really build your own contextual framework of what this thing is going to look like and try to avoid affirmation bias and try to do as much of that up front as you can. Got
0: it. And then are there any other kind of areas of fintech right now that excite you? I know you're certainly pretty busy and focused on Cement, but any other areas that, that you're keeping an eye
1: on? I still believe in the blockchain, but... You know, not so much the crypto side of it, but the the idea that the blockchain can be used in a whole host of arenas, like digital ID verification, data storage in a secure manner, all these other things, like you know, smart contracts. Currency in an environment of hyperinflation, uh, hyperinflation, where the social contract is broken and currencies aren't worth as much, like you know, emerge like you know, countries in extreme distress, like you know, like Venezuela and Iran and places like that. So, I still think there's a huge amount of things that can be done with it the right way. It's unfortunate that the way it blew up, there was a lot of bad actors involved and that undermined the value of the overall thing. So I'm hoping that, that that whole industry moves in the right direction. But the foundational technology, I still think has a lot of applications that could be very interesting in the future.
0: And toward the end of the interview, we usually like to ask about personal hobbies and activities. What, what has been keeping you busy recently and have you picked up any new quarantine hobbies?
1: <laughs> I, uh, I had to build my own gym little bits at a time. <laughs> I'm a, I love weightlifting, I love exercise, I love head training and you know there's no more gyms so and instead of like ordering a ton of stuff online uh, i've actually been trying to support the local ecosystem and there's like you know metal shops that are now making weights there's uh there's guys that are you know building kettlebells using concrete and equipment out of home depot there's you know i bought a bench and a squat rack that was made in a wood shop uh here locally that was cured and now they're gonna put patterns on it and stuff so uh, you know. one of the things that I found that was like amazing is how quickly people found whatever was around them and the creativeness of people got them into new stuff. And I've, and I've loved seeing it. Like I haven't tried to negotiate a single one of those deals. I'm like, Hey, are you, he's like, I'm going to make you a, a squat deadlift bench rack in my garage using wood. And I'm like, man, like, that's amazing. Like I'm in. So there's been a lot of like I've been building. Like I've been got like one new piece of equipment almost like every week, basically trying to build out this gym. So following a lot of like you know fitness influencers online and slowly piece by piece building my gym has become my hobby. Basically, <laughs> that's a
0: great hobby to have right now, and and one I bet a lot of other people wish they had. I'm I'm currently just back order trying to order back ordered resistance bands and dumbbells on Amazon every day.
1: <laughs> yeah. Go online. If a piece of advice, go on Facebook marketplace and there's people like I bought, I'll I show like the, the, he made me like 25, 45 pound, like disc weights with a barbell in, in, in his metal shop that was being used for oil field service, oil crashed and he reapplied it and now his business is taking off and now he's spun up a, a, a digital storefront on, on Shopify. Like there's a lot, like the reason why Shopify is on fire is because people are innovators in North America, Canada, U S it's, you know, they the spirit of entrepreneurship doesn't stop when challenges begin, it goes into overdrive. And so like, if you go on like Facebook marketplace and you look in your local area, I'm sure you'll see people innovating in all kinds of ways. We have farmers who can't get their stuff to the, to the, to the, to the stores. And so they're selling it online. And so we're buying our meat locally and doing all kinds of, like there is a lot of interesting things that are happening online that we're taking advantage of because I don't know, like, I feel like karma, like I feel like it's almost like, like my responsibility to do small things and big things all around me to support my fellow citizens and because so many people had to support me to take me from where i am to where i am today you know what i mean and so i believe in doing big things and small things to give back because it's like a state of mind and so if you go online and you check these things out you'll find some incredible stuff being done like my 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 coolest one is the guy who's making kettlebells using like you know plumbing hose and and concrete, and I go out like a fifty pound kettlebell that way, and it works great. And I, I show it to my friends, and I'm like, look at these things; it looks like I'm a beast. <laughs> it's anyway, I, it, it's not, it doesn't just it's not just stop at 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 equipment; it's everything. Like people are offering to do home improvement, people building homemade furniture, they're doing online Zoom classes on how to paint, like my wife is doing. It's just so many cool things that you can do if you just tap into what your the people in your area are doing. It's it's amazing.
0: Yeah. Th- thank you for that. That's the kind of optimism that I think the world needs right now and, and the stories that maybe aren't getting out enough. I think that's a perfect place to end. And, and given all of your messaging about all the good work that you're trying to do with, with Cement helping millions of people across the world and also now in your community. Um, so I want Thanks. to thank you for your time, Hanif, and, and thank you for coming on the show. It was great to have you.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the and FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know your thoughts in the comments. If you're looking for more FinTech content, subscribe to our podcast channel or find us on linkedin instagram twitter and medium at wharton fintech there you will find articles videos and much more analyzing all
1: aspects of the industry signing off i'm your host ryan zauk